Well, let's pray. We, um, before we pray, I just really want to sort of let you all know what I'm getting ready to do here in the book of Hebrews. I thought I would take opportunity as we're looking at this context to preach a series of messages on spiritual maturity, because that really is what is lacking in this passage of Scripture. You probably detected it just as we were reading through the text, uh, but that is really a, a huge problem for this pastor in Hebrews as he's addressing the issues of the congregation, what he calls they've become dull of hearing, which really is a reference to spiritual discernment and spiritual maturity. And that really is the need of the hour. And so what I want to do in the next several weeks, so don't be alarmed, because we are going to be in all sorts of passages of Scripture, but to take this as a principal text that we can launch from here and study the subject of spiritual maturity and ground ourselves in this passage of Scripture. That's my aim. That's where I'm going. And by God's grace, that's what we hope to do. So let's pray, and uh, we will begin. Father... Lord, we do thank you for this day, and again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your church. I thank you, Lord, that we can come together, that we can sharpen one another according to your word, that we can find um, maturity in the pages of Scripture, and that you, Lord, are committed to our sanctification. Jesus is the one that said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we're so grateful, Father, that Not only do you not leave us as we were, not only do you take us out of darkness to light, but then you begin the marvelous transformation process of sanctification. You begin to renew our hearts, our minds, our affections. Everything changes, or at least it ought to. And so, Lord, we pray, God, that you would transform us. That's what we pray today. That's our prayer as we stand here under this text, that you would, from glory to glory, transform us into the very image of your Son, Jesus. And so we pray for your help now, Lord, not only to to speak, but also, as even Hebrew says here, to listen. And so give us discernment and give us a, a heart for your word, we pray. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So today's sermon is entitled, Learning to Listen, and I take it from verse 11. So let me just read verse 11 again. He says, concerning him... We have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. These words are um, very earnest. Uh, Look at the language here. Concerning him, we have much to say. That's one (laughs) adverb there. And then he says, it is hard to explain. That's another adverb there. And then he says, since you have become dull of hearing. So very descriptive, very vivid language that the author is using here to describe the need of the hour, which is the need to learn how to listen. So we need to define what does he mean by learning to listen, or what does the word listening here refer to? Well, it doesn't refer to uh, listening, you know, in the terms of that they have some sort of hearing loss, but it really speaks of spiritual perception, spiritual discernment, spiritual acumen, the ability to discern, to hear, to have an ear to hear, in other words, what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. And this is really a remarkable thing because we are called as Christians to growth, 
You remember what Peter tells his church there in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spiritual stagnation is not an option for the Christian. We are to be growing by the milk of the Word. That is what Peter goes on to say. But this just tells us again in verses 11 to 14, he really gives us these propositions to help us to see our need for spiritual growth. And really, everything has to do with the Word of God. You know, we could say that there are all sorts of aspects to spiritual maturity. For example, we have the influence of the local church. And who, I mean, we could say that's the biggest part of it all is you need to be in church in order to grow as a Christian. And no one would disagree with that, that you are to be joined to a local church, hopefully and uh, most biblically, I believe, through membership, you are to join yourself to a local body because that is Christ's visible expression on earth locally for you. And he designed it for you to be a part of that church, to grow in that church, to mature in that church, to serve in that church. That's all God's design. So we can say the importance of the local church. I mean, who can undermine the importance of the local church? No one can at all. You think about spiritual maturity, and you also think about the spiritual disciplines. You think about prayer. And of course, prayer is instrumental to the Christian life. It is how we commune with God. It is how we fellowship with God. It is how we speak to God. And therefore, prayer is all important for our spiritual maturity. That cannot be denied. That cannot be denied. But the pastor here focuses on what is of equal importance. We could even say of most importance, first importance, and that is the believer's connection to Scripture. And so that's going to be the focus of our study for the next few weeks. Turn to 1 Peter with me first to, just to kind of see how important Scripture is to our Christian life and in connection to our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity. In fact, we can say the totality of the, of the Christian life, our war with sin, our sanctification, the very authenticity of our salvation, and whether or not we've actually come to know Jesus personally, authentically, intimately, is all connected to the Word of God. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He says, Therefore, put aside all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word of God. That is to be our disposition. He says, So that, this is the reason or the purpose, by it, that is the Word of God, you may grow in respect to salvation. If you have tasted the kind, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, um, that's right. That is basically going in reverse. If you have genuinely tasted of the Lord, which means if you have genuinely partaken of Christ, tasted of Christ, remember it was Jesus who said that you should eat His flesh and drink His blood. And so, what is Peter doing here? He's he is sort of He's, um, he's sort of latching on to that motif and saying, we need to internalize the Word of the Lord for our good. The truth is, is that the Word of God, through the Word of God, we come to understand virtually everything. I mean, think about the relevance of the Word of God. Isn't the Bible an amazing book? 
It literally speaks about and touches upon virtually everything under heaven. I would even go so far as to say it touches upon everything under heaven, either explicitly or implicitly. But the Bible is a fascinating book because it is God's book. It is the number one bestseller in the history of humanity. More people on planet Earth since its composition have read the Bible than any other book in the world. It's just an amazing thing. Only through divine revelation. Let's just get into the, the things that we know. That through divine revelation, we know who God is. We know His attributes. We know His achievements. And we know His demands. Consequently, we also know ourselves principally from Scripture. Without Scripture, brothers and sisters, we don't know who we are. We don't know our purpose. We don't know our makeup. We don't know what man is. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be a person? Boy, those types of questions are becoming increasingly relevant in our modern age, are they not? What is a person? When does a person become a person? <laughs> those kinds of questions baffling to many people, but to us who have the wisdom and the knowledge of God, the issue is clear. We know who we are because Scripture tells us precisely who we are. These answers only come from a source of absolute transcendent authority, and that is what Scripture is. The Bible tells us where we come from. The Bible tells us who we are, and the Bible tells us where we're going. The Bible tells us everything that we need to know, like Peter says, everything that pertains to life and godliness, so that the man of God may be competent, fully equipped. See, God has given you everything that you need for spiritual prosperity in the Christian life, to be like the Psalm 1 man, the blessed man of Psalm 1, to be a person who is always fruitful, whose fruit, his fruit, his, his, uh, his, Leaves, that's the word I'm looking for. His leaves are always flourishing. He's always there rooted, grounded next to the streams of living water. And whatever he does, God prospers him because he has a right spiritual perspective. But let me just make a quick caveat, just a qualification in terms of our study of Scripture. The caveat has to do with knowing Scripture, knowing God, and the difference. The fact that what Christianity is not is that Christianity is not rationalism. It is not simply being able to intellectually account for things. That is not what Christianity is at all. In other words, what we do in Christianity is not simply an exercise in brute intellectualism. You know what I mean? Our intellectualism is spiritual. In other words, it has a spiritual component it is principally spiritual, and because it is spiritual, our knowledge of things, of Scripture, the knowledge of God is for one ultimate reason, and that is to know God Himself. Apart from that, brothers and sisters, what we have is not Christianity. Apart from that, what we have is the accumulation of facts, which is nothing more than deism. And deism is the fact that God is separate from us. He is unknowable. He is detached from the created order. And you might learn things about God, but you certainly will never know Him. Christianity is the complete opposite. Everything that you learn, everything that you, that you come to understand, doctrinally speaking, is for one great divine purpose, and that is to know God more correctly. If we don't, 
then we slip into what J.I. Packer says in his classic book, Knowing God. How many of you have read Knowing God? It is such a great book. You should read it. If you never have, it's a foundational book with many, many spiritual truths that are uh, beneficial for us. But uh, Packer speaks about spiritual pride and spiritual conceit for those that only approach Scripture to learn things and not to learn about God or know God. Listen to what uh, Packer says, because he offers us, I think, the right advice. He says, our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrines of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is the subject of our study and the helper in it, so he must be he must himself be the end of it. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. You see that? He says, it was for this purpose that revelation was given, and it is to, it is to this use that we must put it. In other words, putting the Bible to use means using the Bible to get to know God better to know the person of God, to actually have greater communion with God. Now, with that said, we have to grasp the importance of Scripture and spiritual maturity because, really, they are inseparable. Scripture and spiritual maturity are inseparable for people. And yet, what do you have in our day and age? You have this prideful, arrogant, anti-scriptural, anti-doctrinal, anti-theological streak in man. Instead, they supply spirituality. They supply charismatic phenomenon. They supply personal experience. They supply tradition. They supply emotional experience. All of these things as a substitute for doctrinal substance. And in doing that, the undercurrent of that always ends in spiritual immaturity or what the author of Hebrews is really getting at, spiritual regression. Going backwards in your sanctification, not forward. Going backwards. We don't want to go backwards. But what he's giving us here is a set of options. He's giving us the option in verse 11 that we will either learn to listen or we will lack in knowledge. That is what he's doing in verse 11. He's also telling us that there is an option to either excel in doctrine or be spiritually malnourished in verse 12. He's also telling us, and this is perhaps one, uh, the purpose of it all, that we are either going to be skilled in righteousness or we will remain in an abnormal adolescent spiritual state in verses 13 and 14. But here, I want to focus on learning to listen or having a lack of knowledge. That really is the alternative that's being set before us. And what it all is grounded in is biblical negligence. Hear his heart. Concerning him, we have much to say. You see, that is the heart of a shepherd, by the way. The heart of a shepherd is always to say, oh, that I would be able to show you this. Oh, that I'd be able to teach you something. Oh, that I would be able to grow and expand your mind. That, your, that illumination would take place in your spiritual life. That you would grow in your understanding of who God is. And that is the pastor's heart in Hebrews. But the people have become dull of hearing. 
Scripture speaks directly to this issue in another place. Do you know where it is? James chapter 1. Turn there with me. James chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. I remember teaching the book of James many, 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 many years ago. Oh, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. I taught the book of James, and I remember being so challenged by the practical wisdom of James because James doesn't give you a lot of qualifications. He just kind of throws something on you. <laughs> he doesn't lead up to it, doesn't give a whole lot of background and context. He just kind of makes statements that are just brute general facts of Scripture, much like the Proverbs. And James says in James chapter 1, verse 21, he says, therefore, which is a great parallel, by the way, to what Hebrews is. And again, another place where a, a, a book like James parallels Hebrews, just fascinating to me. But anyway, these are what's called the general epistles. The general epistles are the epistles that appear after Hebrews. But anyway, let's keep going. James says, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. See, it's always a moral issue, folks. God is always after our soul. He's always after our morality. He's always after our conduct. He says, in humility, receive what? The Word. Isn't that powerful? Morality calls for theology. Isn't that remarkable? In humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your soul. That's how powerful this is that I'm handling in my hands. It is so potent, powerful, that it's able to save your suke, soul, that spiritual, invisible, internal aspect of your humanness. Verse 22, prove yourselves to be doers of the word. See, it's not enough to make a, a profession of being a doer. Oh, I, I, I have works. I have deeds. Don't worry. I'm okay, right? How, how many of you have ever tried to encourage or admonish a brother or sister, and you get this sort of, oh, I'm okay. Don't worry about me. I, I have my things going on, right? Oh, the, James says, prove to be a doer, right? He's not saying show off spiritually, but he is saying you'd better have a life that manifests a patterned obedience after the doctrine of Christ. That is what he's saying. And not only merely hears, watch this, who delude themselves. You see the danger in being exposed to truth? This is a double-edged sword, folks. We have truth, praise God, and in our church, we have a, quite a doctrinal church here, and we talk about Theology. I mean, today in Sunday school, we went, we're going through the order salutis, and we're one doctrinal issue after another. And it's great for our learning, for our expansion, for our growth. But I tell you what, it had better be affecting our deeds and not just our, our theology and our mind, right? It better have a practical outworking in your life. Or if you're just a hearer who is passively taking in theological information, but you don't have any practical outlet of that information, then you could fall under self-deception. The deception will be that everything is okay. The deception will be that you are something you're really not. Look at what he says. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks, his, looks at his natural face in the mirror. For once he has looked at himself and then gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. In other words, without the word of God, what, what fills the void is a strange sort of carnal forgetfulness of who you are in Christ and who are you intended to be. 
And that forgetfulness comes upon you. You forget to be accustomed to righteousness and the things of God. You begin to develop a spiritual amnesia to who you used to be in Christ. Verse 25, he says, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, which I've done a lot of study on that phrase, and that I can sum that up as saying the gospel. That's what he's talking about there, the gospel. And abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. I love the fact that he said effectual doer, right? Not just simply a duty-bound doer, right? Not just somebody that does things because that is what's demanded of him, because it is right, but it's effectual. In other words, he has, the, he has all the components. He does it out of the right heart. He does it with the right perspective. He does it with the right motive. He does it from a proper uh, a theological foundation. He's not, trying to get, he's not trying to gain the righteousness of of God in Christ. He has the righteousness of God in Christ, and therefore, he is an effectual doer. See, this is the blessing that we are looking for, because he says, this man will be blessed in what he does. So, this moves us to the next thing. Not just the issue that we need to learn to listen, right? But I want to give you three things. This is the next thing, these three points. Number one, We need to understand that there is great reward in listening, great reward in listening. When the author of Hebrews says, concerning him, we have much to say, part of what that means is you stand to gain a great bounty of divine truth. But the problem is, is that you have become dull of hearing, but you stand to gain You stand to understand uh, some scriptural truth that's going to help you. It's going to help you. And I can resonate with this so much on a pastoral level, just the desire to want to see people grow, to get them to grow in knowledge, grow in understanding, grow in theology, because if properly applied, if you are an effectual doer, that will change your life. Sadly, today... There's a famine in the land. There's a famine, you know, of exegetical preaching, expository preaching, serious preaching. And there is a deluge. There is a virtual flood of fluffy preaching, soft preaching. I like what John MacArthur says. Soft preaching produces hard people. Hard preaching produces soft people. Because if you preach a palatable message to the carnal aspect of man, then he becomes hardened in that carnality, and he is no longer receptive when it comes to the truth of the Word of God. In a sense, ironically, soft preaching hardens the heart of man and doesn't make him palatable, moldable. God can't work with a non-responsive heart. And so, in other words, we need to hear the truth, and the truth as Jesus said, will set us free. Before the church is a place for anything else, brothers and sisters, the church is the storehouse of divine truth. Look with me at Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I could just read it for you. 1 Timothy 3.14 says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Conduct. Rooted in what? Look at how he progresses here. 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. Our conduct should flow from our creed. That's what he's saying. The church is the place where God's word is to be disseminated, handed out, taught. It's where it should be proclaimed. So before you turn the church into a networking opportunity, before the church becomes a social club for spiritual people or a dating service, whatever it may be, a, a place where you're going to build a nice family, before the church becomes a place where you can exercise various ministry opportunities, the very first thing it is, it is a storehouse of divine truth. This is what God designed the church to be. Now turn with me to Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, yes, because I am looking at verse 11 today, we are looking at all sorts of select texts. But Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, when you become a member at Heritage Grace, we walk through this passage of Ephesians 4, verses 1 all the way to 16, but I'm going to read verses 1 and 12, excuse me, verses 11 to 16, sorry, verse 11 to 16, and we're going to look at verses 11 to 12, that's what I want to focus on, because this really is Paul's utopian vision for the church, what the church ought to be when it is functioning in the right way, and look what he says, you know this passage, he gave some apostles, some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers, for what? For the equipping, this is a, there's a triple, if you would, there is a triple purpose clause here, okay? He says, number one, for this purpose, so that the saints can be equipped. Ne subs uh, what is the subsequent purpose to that? For the work of service. And what is the purpose of that? To the building up of the body of Christ. You see that? And you say, well, I am listening to the Word. I do feel equipped. I have been learning. So the next question you need to ask yourself is the all-important practical question. Are you building up the body of Christ? Because it does no good to say you're amassing and accumulating all of this spiritual wisdom and knowledge, but you have no proof of it. Because the proof, my dear friends, is the expression that comes in living in a spiritual community like this, where we have the ability to fulfill all of the one another's of Scripture, where we're able to teach one another, bless one another, serve one another. You know the one another's. And then also, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16, this is what Scripture's purpose is. It is inspired for this reason. God breathed out the Bible. The miracle of the Bible means that it is this function. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. What for? So that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. Again, you see the practicality of it? It's not just so that the man of God can become an armchair theologian. It's so that the man of God who is, should be a theologian also is filled with good works. It's so practical. It's humbling. You know what it is? It's humbling because you have to submit yourself to this, that what Jesus wants is He doesn't want a bunch of lopsided Christians walking around in the world with all this head knowledge, but no feet to the theology, no practical hands to their, to their doctrine. No, he wants, he wants us to be holistic 
Yes, he wants moms at home to be little theologians in the house who are catechizing and teaching their children, but he also wants the men of the church not to just resign themselves to, well, I do my theology in the, in the office, but when I come out here, I don't really do much with it. No, God wants you to do much with it. He wants you to do much with it. The Word of God has the capacity, in other words, to make us competent for this life. And so my, my job, my task, the trick for me is to get you to buy into that that the Word does have the power that it claims to have to be able to transform your life. Scripture is how we discern all of that. We discern everything that pertains to life and godliness. Hebrews uh, chapter 5, verse 11 here, this verse, implies two other things. Number one, it implies the truth. It, it implies that truth comes through a serious, serious study of Scripture. And number two, secondly... That spiritual laziness will hinder us from effectually mining out all of the diamonds and the treasures of the text, of the text. This is why for the true student of Scripture, a surface-level reading of the Bible will not do. You must be a student of Scripture. I know that in this room, there are, I, am, I am joined by a group of brilliant people I guarantee you, you take me, you plop me into many of your guys' jobs and what you do in your employment, I don't know what I'm doing. I get fired because I don't know the manual. I don't know the procedures. I haven't read the, I haven't read the instructions. I, I haven't gone through the training. I haven't gone through the rigors. I don't understand the tech side of all of that, especially the tech side of stuff. I'll really get fired. <laughs> but what I'm saying is that we all have aptitude be careful that you don't sink into your pew or your chair and say, oh, that theology stuff, that's for the smart people. No, my dear friends, don't underestimate yourself. Understand, I was so fascinated when I was in Mexico doing a, a conference on Christ and all of Scripture, and some of the families coming up to me afterwards, I tell you what, I was, I was almost in tears talking to a, 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 a woman with her three little children, and and she looked like she was uh, just your average Mexican lady that's walking down the street with her kids with some bags of groceries. And do you know what our conversation was about? It was about how does the literal historical grammatical hermeneutic compare to the redemptive historical uh, hermeneutic of the Old Testament? Huh? This lady was asking me those questions. It was great. And I'll never forget driving away from that. I told Trish this, driving away from that conference, I glanced out of my window, I looked back, and there I see her walking down a busy Mexican street with her kids following behind her. And I thought, does anybody in that entire city, could they ever even imagine that such high, lofty, theological things are going on in that woman's head? It's beautiful. I love it. It stirs me up. It stirs me up. No, we need to do this, folks. So part of what I'm doing now is giving you a little hermeneutical lesson, right? Because anytime you study a book of hermeneutics, guess what is the first principle that they tell you to do? Not just read the Bible, but reread it. Read it carefully. Read it constantly, continually. Be committed to reading it. 
John MacArthur says, when I study a book of the Bible, for 90 days I read that book over and over and over, every day or every week. Boom, 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 boom. He did that with 1 John, and for 90 days he read the book of 1 John 90 times, every day through the book of 1 John. And so what hermeneutics tells you is read the Bible and then reread it. And then when you read it, then you begin to analyze it. You begin to outline the Bible, break it down into all its various parts. In other words, you take it from the chapter to the paragraph, from the paragraph to the sentence, from the sentence to the clause, from the clause to the word. You you don't think it's important? I know you do. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, what Genesis was talking about was not seeds, plural. Seed. (laughs) One word decides the whole theology of everything that he's saying. One word in the history of the Christian church has often decided the fate of all orthodox Christianity. You think, go back to Council of Nicaea, go back to Athanasius. That whole controversy over the doctrine of the Trinity came down to one word difference. And praise God for that. Because when it comes down to such specificity, we have the upper hand. And here's the thing. Give yourself to this. I guarantee you, when you go, I can't do this. Yes, you can. It's very simple. You take a chapter of the Bible, break it down into different paragraphs. Look at those paragraphs, you pull out important sentences. Take out those sentences, then you look at smaller little phrases. And then you take those phrases and say, what's the most important word in that phrase? Probably the verb, because it's telling me action. So that's what you do. In 1533, Martin Luther gave himself to an intense study of Scripture. This is what he said. He says, for a number of years now, I have come annually to read through the Bible twice. He says, if the Bible were a large, mighty tree, he says, and all of the words were little branches, he says, I have tapped all of the branches, eager to know what was in there and what it had to offer. Is that how you come to the Bible? What does this verse have to offer me? There's something here for me. There's a gem. There's a jewel. I'm about to turn the diamond to see another facet that I've never seen before. And oftentimes, that that depends on how much we are going to drill down deep. I have a scripture for you. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Fascinating word. Fascinating text. It's a small little verse, but it's so powerful. Maybe you've thought about this already. I saw, four, I saw a sermon here. I saw a four-point sermon right here. Paul tells Timothy, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Isn't that remarkable? Now, stay there, verse 7, and look carefully, because this is the way I'm going to break down the sermon and how you could preach this verse. He says, consider. There you have personal responsibility because it's an imperative. It's a command. Consider. So you are being called now to a certain type of thought life, a certain type of train of thought, to a deep investigation. He says, consider what I say. What I say refers to the theological 
content of what Paul's been talking about. And then he says, for the Lord will give you, and that refers to divine assistance in this process, divine assistance. And then he says, he will give you understanding in everything, which is spiritual illumination. Your mind will open up. God will show you incredible newfound vistas of truth that you've never seen before if you do this. And this is how the Word of God will begin to penetrate and increase. This is our calling. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, brethren, I urge you by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then look how closely, again, the deeds and the doctrine are. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see that? It's a worldview shift. What's the purpose? So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, that which is acceptable, that which is perfect. This is what the Bible will do for us. Second thing, not only do we have to understand the reward of listening, but next, we have to be honest about the difficulty of listening. Because look at what the text says back in Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 5.11. Concerning him, that's referring back to the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Now, two sides of this equation. In the context here, it is difficult to explain because of one very important reason. They have become dull of hearing. It's, it's not an attack on the perspicuity of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. Scripture is clear. However, we also have to be honest that there are two sides to this. There is a fact that Scripture is at parts difficult. It takes hard work to understand. It's difficult to explain, difficult to understand. Look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 and 16. This was a great encouragement to me as a young student of Scripture, and still now as a little bit, a little bit uh, how, how would I say this? I don't want to call myself an old, that sounds prideful, uh, not so young uh, student of Scripture, okay? But I still feel like a novice when I approach the Word of God. But look at, this, is, this gave me great encouragement. Why? Because this is apostolic confession of how that the text is not that simple to interpret. Peter says, beginning in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless, blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, watch this, in which are some things hard to understand, in which, and watch this, which the untaught and the unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So there is a double threat here. Not only do we have to be careful because Scripture is difficult. There are thorny theological passages. There are crux interpretums in Scripture that really are, take a, demand a lot out of you. 
You have to get down to the original language sometimes. You have to get down to the very word, the very tense. You have to get into the exegesis. And oh, praise God, aren't you thankful for teachers? I am. I rely on teachers. I go to my commentaries. I go to Greek lexicons. I go to people that have gone before me. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you right now, I don't come up here Sunday after Sunday to try to come up with something new. I don't come up here Sunday after Sunday to come up with some novel theology, novel idea that no one's ever heard of before, some insight that no one's ever had. That's not what I'm doing. I am hoping to bring to you old truth in a fresh way. That's it. And even fresh way is just, the conservative me doesn't even like that. But you know what I mean. Uh, It's like Jesus said, the scribes of the kingdom. They bring things out of the storehouse, right? The treasure house, both old and new, so that we can have fresh insight into the Word of God, but nothing new, I promise, will be discovered. It will be some truth that somebody has already articulated, somebody has already gone before you in that. John Piper says, I've never had one primary thought in my life. I agree with him. We stand on the shoulders of giants, and I love going to the giants going to the Puritans, going to the commentaries, going to Calvin. I can't tell you how many times I go to these exegetical commentaries that are very rigorous, and it's all about the original language, very technical, a hundred footnotes, and sometimes they just don't hit the sense. And I go to Calvin, 500-year-old commentary, and I pick up Calvin, and I read Calvin, and I say, there it is! That's what I was looking for. I'm so grateful that God led him down a train of thought that I needed for clarification. And that's the way that it works in our lives. That's the way it ought to work to carry us along. The church should be a safe haven of doctrinal discernment. Did you catch that in Peter? There are some who are untaught and unstable. Not a surprise to see those things go together. People who are theologically ignorant, maybe they are theologically unskilled, and they are unstable, which is a spiritual connotation. They don't have a life that is worthy. They don't have a life that is consistent. In other words, they're leading an immoral life, or they're leading a life that's contrary to what they say they believe in. Be careful, because in other words, the double-edged sword here is it's hard work for us, but we've got to do the hard work because there are false teachers, and there are false prophets, and there are antichrist spirits out there who will take the Word of God and twist it and distort it and seek to unsettle the faith of some. Last thing, not just the difficulty of listening, my dear friends, the crisis of listening. Although Scripture can obviously be difficult to interpret, the Bible is clear, and Psalm 19.7 is a clear example of that. The Word of God makes the simple wise. If we simply take God at His Word, the the most theologically unskilled person among us can grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. It can take a person like me. When I first became a Christian, my dear friends, I tell you what, I think I had read one book my entire life prior to that at 19 years old. Don't ask me how I got through High school, that's a different story. I didn't get through high school. As a matter of fact, I dropped out of high school. I don't have a diploma. I don't have a seminary degree. God, by His grace, began to transform my mind, and I give all glory and all credit to Him. 
Because me, in and of myself, I was in a state of spiritual stupor. I was in a state of darkness. And um, I can testify to the power of the Word of God to virtually transform a person in the most inner core of who they are, epistemologically, philosophically, emotionally, existentially, everything about you, your behavior, everything, the Word of God has the power to change you. But the crisis is this, that though the Word of God is clear, there it is, it's clear, it's there for our taking, the crisis is, is that there is a moral issue at work here. And that is that spiritual dullness, let's read the text again. Spiritual dullness is a moral issue. He says, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since, or we could say because, it's a causal phrase, you have need, no, excuse me, got that wrong, you have become dull of hearing. You know what's fascinating about this? What's fascinating about this is the way that the, the Greek words are phrased in this one verse. Verse 11 actually says, concerning whom much the word to say. What? Concerning him, ha lagos, the word. Much the word to say. And what scholars are saying is that what the author of Hebrews is actually saying is the word, what he's saying, we have much to say, which is actually halagos. He's saying the word there is we have much about the message. <laughs> the word can be translated the message. And what's that referring to? It's referring, my dear friends, to Hebrews chapter 2, where the author says in verses I think it's verse 3, how we escape if we neglect so great a salvation. That is the word of salvation. That is the gospel, in other words. That is the message about Christ. We have so much to say about this, but you have become dull. The Greek word here, uh, which is nothros, just simply means lazy, sluggish, but in this context... It means something like negligent. You have become negligent of these things. Do you know what the word, what the phrase depraved indifference means? In a legal terms, in forensic terms, you can, be, you can be prosecuted for depraved indifference. That is when you stand by knowing the right thing to do and having the ability to do it, but then refusing to do it. So it would be the equivalent of being in your backyard and seeing your neighbor's baby drowning in a pool. And there's no fence, and yet you lift no hand to help the baby. You can be prosecuted for depraved indifference. Folks, so many people in the church today approach the Bible with a depraved indifference. It is there for them. It is available for them. They have all the tools. We have, I have 4,000 books in my phone. I have commentaries, lexicons. I don't leave home without it. I don't leave home without my exegetical library. <laughs> I, I can't take my real library with me. You guys, have, some of you have seen that. That's a lot of books. I can't take it with me. But I'm at Walmart, and I'm in a line, 
And, um, okay, sometimes I get frustrated, but sometimes I don't get frustrated. Instead of getting frustrated, I break out my library and I start reading my commentary and I start reading ahead for the study that I'm preparing for Sunday. Any little exegetical progress that I can make is good progress, even if you're in a line at Walmart. In other words, God has given us all the tools that we need. And yet, those in Hebrews had neglected their own soul. They had become spiritually lazy, negligent. They just neglected the Bible. They knew it was there. They knew how to study. They had graduated from school. Maybe they'd gone to college. Many of them were many learned people. I can't tell you how many learned people I have met in the church who are brilliant people in the realm of politics, brilliant people in the realm of economics, brilliant people in the realm of education, mathematics. But strangely for some, when it comes to theology, it just seems like there's been a a neglect. And so for us, if that's us in any way, shape, or form, know that that is a moral issue. That is a spiritual issue of the heart. And that we may, to, we may need to examine ourselves. Turn to one last passage of Scripture to give us the glorious antithesis of this. Colossians chapter 3. Thanks be to God that this is not His will for our lives. His will for our lives is actually the complete opposite. No, I'm not talking about everyone has to become a scholar. But I am saying every one of us should be filled with the Word of God filled. Colossians says, let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. Isn't that glorious? In other words, we are not called to biblical illiteracy leading to stagnation. We are called to biblical fluency leading to plenty and abundance. He says, if it is within you, then he says, with all wisdom, therefore, teaching admonishing one another. Watch this. Even our songs are theological with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That song that we sang um, about God's electing call. We only did two, so you better remember it. (laughs) God's electing call. Our brother Chris Shaw wrote that out of Romans 9. That's what I'm talking about taking hard theological truth, putting it to song, and learning it. The Jews would teach their children in songs. Moses instructed the people of Israel, teach your children in songs. That's great. That's great because songs stick, don't they? I was, um, I'll give you one embarrassing example of this, okay, for me. Uh, Many of you know my wife is in that slim number in church history of people that have memorized Psalm 119, 172 verses or something like that. And the way that she has done it, I think she's almost there, and the way that she has done it is that she's put little nerdy, very quirky, goofy little songs to these psalms. And I was reading Psalm 119 in preparation for this sermon, and I found myself singing the songs. (laughs) And I've learned them through osmosis by her just sitting in the car and saying, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those 
Where am I at? Who observe his testimony, who seek them with all their heart. They also do know unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. Okay, I started singing that. And I was like, I know this psalm now. <laughs> not quite, not quite. But it just showed you, it showed me, wow, the power of singing Scripture. I think I've been neglecting that passage in Ephesians and Colossians for far too long. Singing to one another, hymns and spiritual songs, right? If we do this, I guarantee you, you will find a great bounty for the soul. We have just begun to talk about spiritual maturity. Let's pray.